section sixteen of the roman empire of the second century by william wolfe capes this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter six the attitude of the imperial government toward the christians part two yet sad to say to the reign of the philosophic emperor belongs many a page of the long chronicle of martyrdom the stories are given us at length of the sufferings of confessors whom the good ruler was either powerless or indifferent to save one of the earliest of such records may be found in a letter of the church of smyrna which describes the last days of the venerable polycarp the passion of the populace had broken out against the christians and after witnessing the death of meaner victims they began to clamour away with the atheists let polycarp be sought the aged bishop wished to stay in the city at his post of duty but his friends urged him to withdraw and shun the storm he was tracked however from one house in the country to another till at length he would fly no further but waited in his hiding-place for his pursuers saying only god's will be done as they returned with him to the city they were met by the chief officer of the police who took up polycarp into his carriage and spoke to him with kindness asking what harm there could be in calling caesar lord and in offering sacrifice to save his life polycarp at first made no reply but at last said i will not do what you advise me threats and violence were of no avail with him and he went on his way calmly to the governor's presence though a deafening din was made by the assembled multitude the proconsul urged him to swear by the genius of caesar and to say away with atheists like the rest the old man looked gravely at the crowd with a sigh and with uplifted eyes then said pointing to them with his finger away with the atheists the governor urged him further swear curse christ and i release thee eighty and six years he answered have i served him and he has done me no harm and how can i blaspheme the king who saved me when still pressed he said if you wish to know what i am i tell you frankly that i am a christian if you would hear an account of christianity appoint a day and hear me the governor who was no fanatic and would have gladly saved him asked him to persuade the people but he refused to defend himself before them the threats of the wild beasts and of the stake were all of no avail and at last it was proclaimed polycarp has confessed himself a christian then all the multitudes of gentiles and of jews who dwelt at smyrna yelled out in furious clamour this is the teacher of impiety the father of the christians the enemy of our gods who teaches so many to turn away from worship and from sacrifice and they cried with one accord that polycarp must be burned alive we need not dwell longer on the story of his martyrdom the outline of which seems genuine enough though there are features of it which were added probably by the fancy of a later age a few years afterwards another storm of persecution raged in gaul at vienna and lugdunum lyon the record of which is given us at full in a letter from the suffering churches to their brethren of asia minor the various parts of the chief actors in the scene are stated in it with unusual clearness and some extracts may serve to illustrate the temper of the social forces of the time the christians of the neighbourhood had been long exposed to insult and outrage in all public places but at length the excitement grew to such a height that a furious mob began to pillage their houses and to drag the inmates off to trial 
as they openly avowed their faith before the magistrates and people they were shut up in prison for a time until the arrival of the roman governor as soon as they were brought before him he showed a spirit of ferocious enmity resorted even to the torture to wring confession from the accused and admitted contrary to legal usage the evidence of heathen slaves against their masters till fear and malice caused them to be accused of thyestian banquets and oedipodian incest no age nor sex was spared meantime potinus the aged bishop of lugdunum was roughly dragged before his judge and asked who was the christian's god he answered only if thou art worthy thou shalt know for this he was set upon and buffeted and cast into a dungeon where after two days his feeble body breathed its last blandina a weak woman was racked from morn till night till the baffled jailers grew weary of their horrid work and were astonished that she was living still but she recovered strength in the midst of her confession and her cry i am a christian and there is no evil done among us brought her refreshment in all the sufferings inflicted on her as some of the accused were roman citizens proceedings were delayed till appeal could be directly made to caesar and his will about the prisoners could be known at length the imperial answer came that those who recanted should be set free but that all who persisted in their creed must die meantime many who had denied already but were still kept in bonds were encouraged by the ardour of the true champions of the faith and came forward to the governor's judgment seat to make a good confession and to be sent by him such as were citizens of rome to be beheaded and all the rest to the wild beasts some indeed who had no marriage garment gave way to their fears but the rest like noble athletes endured diverse contests and gained great victories and received the crown of incorruption last of all blandina was again brought in along with ponticus a boy of about fifteen years of age these two had been taken daily to the amphitheatre to see the tortures which the rest endured and force was used to make them swear by the idols of the heathen but as they still were firm and constant the multitude was furious against them and neither pitied the boy's tender years nor respected the woman's sex they inflicted on them every torture but failed to make them invoke their gods for ponticus encouraged by his sister after enduring nobly every kind of agony gave up the ghost while the blessed blandina last of all after having like a noble mother inspirited her children trod the same path of conflict which her children trod before her hastening on to them with joy at her departure not as one thrown to the wild beasts but as one invited to a marriage supper the heathens themselves acknowledging that never among them did woman endure so many and so fearful tortures we cannot read without emotion the story of these heroic martyrs but it has besides this special interest for us that it shows the persecution taking its rise as usual in the blind fury of the people and encouraged also by local magistrates provincial governors and either by marcus aurelius himself or by his representatives at rome if the prince was too busy with the marcomannic war yet for none of these can the excuse of ignorance be fairly pleaded for christianity had been long before the world there was no mystery or concealment of its creed its most distinctive features were confessed in the pages even of its hostile critics and for some years past apologists had been busy in doing battle with the prejudices of the people 
and appealing to the enlightened judgment of the Caesars. Thus even the mocking Lucian, in a single page of his satiric medley, reflects the noble unworldliness of the young church, its enthusiastic hopes of a life beyond the grave, its generous spirit of sympathy and brotherhood, with the longing to have all things in common which made it easily the dupe of sanctimonious impostors. He describes the life of such a clever rogue, under the name of Peregrinus Proteus, who after many a fraudulent device professed himself a convert, and soon rose to high repute among the Christians by his plausible eloquence and seeming zeal. From his energy he was singled out for persecution, thus winning admiration from the brethren as a confessor and a saint. While he was in prison they spared no trouble or expense to gain his freedom, and failing in this, they were careful to provide for all his wants. From the dawn of day old women, widows, and orphans might be seen standing at the prison doors. The chief members of the sect, having bribed the keepers, slept near him in the dungeon. They brought him all kinds of good cheer, and read the books of scripture in his presence. Even from cities in Asia Minor came deputies from Christian societies to offer comfort and to plead his cause, for nothing, says Lucian, can exceed their eagerness in like cases or their readiness to give away all they have. Poor wretches they fancy that they are immortal, and so they make light of tortures and give themselves up willingly to death. Their first lawgiver has also caused them to believe that all of them are brothers. Renouncing therefore the gods of Greece, and adoring the crucified sophist whose laws they follow, they are careless of the goods of life and have them all in common, so entire is their faith in what he told them. About the same time probably Celsus, the philosopher, devoted all his acuteness and his wit to an elaborate attack upon the Christian creed, and proved that he had made himself acquainted with the letter of its doctrines, though he had not the earnestness of heart to appreciate its spirit. His work is only known to us in the reply of origin, but in the course of the objections urged and met, we have brought before us the chief aspects of the new morality. Thus, when he makes the Christians say, let no educated or wise man draw near, but whoever is ignorant, whoever is like a child, let him come and be comforted. He only states in taunting form the well-known paradox of the gospel teaching, but in his protest at such ignorant faith he does not stay to ask how a religion which disowned, as he thought, appeal to reason, could give birth to the many heresies and varying sects on which he lays elsewhere such stress as a weak point in the Christian system. Again, though only as a hostile critic, he bears witness to its promises of peace and grace to the sinful and despairing conscience. They, he says, who bid us be initiated into the mysteries of other creeds begin by proclaiming, Let him draw near who is unstained and pure, who is conscious of no guilt, who has lived a good and upright life. But let us hear the invitation of these Christians. Whoever is a sinner, they cry, whoever is foolish or unlettered, in a word, whoever is wretched, him will the kingdom of God receive. With this we may connect his comment on the subject of conversion. It is clear that no one can quite change a person to whom sin has become a second nature, even by punishment, and far less than by mercy, for to bring about an entire change of nature is the hardest of all things. Celsus knew the chief points of the story of the life and character of Christ, but was unaffected by its moral grandeur. 
he had heard of humility as a marked feature of the christian spirit but it seemed to him a morbid growth a perversion of the philosopher's ideal he was familiar with the teaching of god's providence and his fatherly care for every soul of man but he thought it all a vain presumption and the talk about the dignity of human nature and possibility of its redemption sounded but as idle and unmeaning words to one who was content with the idea of a great universe evolving through unchanging laws an endless round of inevitable results in the next century christianity found champions who were ready to meet such attack on its own ground and to furbish for their use the weapons drawn from the armory of philosophic schools but the apologists of that age had other work to do accused as they had been as atheists misanthropes magicians and sensualists of the worst type the pressing need for them was to rebut such wanton slander and to appeal to the imperial justice from the calumnies of ignorant malice they were not like divines engaged on treatises of theological lore but writing face to face with the thought of speedy death they turned to meet the danger of the moment and dwelt on practice as well as on belief in answer to the coarse falsehoods which were spread about their secret meetings they described at length their doings in their sunday gatherings how they met to read the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets then when the reader ceases the president exhorts to copy those good things then we rise up altogether and offer prayers and when we cease from prayer bread is brought and wine and water and the president offers prayers in like manner and thanksgivings and the people add aloud amen and the sharing of those things for which thanks have been given takes place to every one and they are sent to those who are not present those who have means and good will give what they like and the sum collected is laid up with the president who in person helps orphans and widows and all who are in need and those who are in bonds and those who have come from a strange land and in one word he is guardian to all who are in need they were spoken of as evil-doers and possibly so-called christians might have been such gnostics or heretics of questionable creeds but if so urged the writers they could be no true followers of him whose recorded words they quote and whose influence in the past they point to as leading the hearts of men from hatred to love from vice to virtue unsocial and morose they were not though they must needs shun the forms of idol worship and the gross offering so unworthy of god's spiritual being magicians certainly they were not and it was an idol taunt to say that the miracles of their master were the mere works of magic art for prophecy had long ago foretold them by the mouth of the holy men of god on which a large measure of the divine spirit must have rested that spirit or external logos was incarnate in its fullness only in christ jesus though shared in some degree by the good men of heathen days like socrates or plato but the greek sages were not able to persuade any one to die for his belief whereas their master was obeyed by poor ignorant artisans and slaves who proved the purity of the religious life by the manly courage of their death as martyrs great however as was their devotion to their heavenly master they had no lack of loyalty to caesar for the kingdom to which christ pointed was no earthly kingdom of material power but their hopes and fears of a life beyond the grave were the surest sanctions of morality and such wholesome restraints on evil-doers all wise governors must welcome 
these were the main topics of the earliest apologies interspersed at times now with attacks upon the heathen legends which sanctified the very vices with which christianity was falsely charged and now with warnings against the malignant action of the demons who had by the allurements of idolatry seduced men from the worship of the living god and who still made their potent influence felt in the outrages of persecution or the snares of heretical deceivers we know little but the names of any of the writers of this class before the time of justin martyr and his story is mainly given in his works if we accept the record of his martyrdom though born in a city of samaria he came seemingly of gentile parents and his attention was only drawn to christianity when he saw how the believers could face the pains of death for i myself he writes while an admirer of platonic thought heard the christians spoken evil of but when i saw them fearless in regard to death and to all else that men think terrible i began to see that they could not possibly be wicked sensualists for what man who is licentious or incontinent would welcome death with the certainty of losing all that he enjoys would he not rather try to live on as before and to shun the notice of the rulers instead of giving information against himself which must lead to his death he had passed from one system to another of the ancient schools of thought seeking from each sage in turn to learn the lessons of a noble life but only when he heard of christian truth was the fire lighted in his soul and he knew that the object of his search was in his grasp for the true philosophy was found at last he tried to pass it on to other men wearing as before the wandering scholar's mantle and talked with men of every race about the questions of the faith his apologies were addressed by him to the antonines by name with what effect we may best judge from the fact that he closed his missionary life by a martyr's death while marcus aurelius was on the throne and we have reason to believe that his sentence was pronounced by rusticus the prefect who owed his place of office to the monarch's gratitude for earlier lessons of morality End of section 16